We're going to be looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 9 together this morning. Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we're in a series called Come Thou Long Expected Jesus as we remember uh, how Israel was longing and awaiting the promise of the Messiah. And so we started the sort of initial seed promise of the arrival of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15 on the first Sunday of Advent, and then we moved on to see how that promise developed gloriously in God's promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And then last Sunday, Pastor Dan took us to 2 Samuel 7, where we saw this continual development of this promise and the Davidic covenant, God's promise to David there. He will have a son who will sit on his throne forevermore. And now we come to Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7, where we see God remind his people of his gracious promise and tell us even more about this, this offspring of the woman, this offspring of Abraham, this offspring of David who is to come. And uh, so I'll give you a minute to turn there, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, would you take a moment to fill out a Connect card? And uh, the Connect cards are just little cards. They should be in the shelf of the, the pew in front of you. Uh, you can grab one of those, fill it out, and turn it into me um, or one of the leaders that you see up here. Or there is a, a wooden box on the uh, table, the golden tablecloth back there. You can just drop it in that wooden box. It says Veritas on the front of it. It's got the, uh, what's our logo? It's like a, a lamp. Uh, it's got that on it. Uh, you'll see it, I promise. Um, I know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, but uh, we're glad to be together. We're glad to have you here with us. We'd love it if you would take a moment, fill it out. Let us know how we can connect with you, how we can be praying for you this week. Um, Isaiah chapter 9 Verses 1 through 7. If you're there, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. We stand out of reverence for God's word and we hear God's word with joy. Because this is the word of our rescuer, of our king, of our good and gracious father to us as his people. Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 7. Isaiah writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and proclamation of your word with the presence and power of your spirit so that we might believe what your word says and trust the promises that we find here in Isaiah 9. That We might trust you and live in accordance with what you say always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Some time ago, I came across a unique story of one church's gathering. One theologian describes it. It was 11.20 a.m. in London, Sunday, June 18, 1944. This was the era of Churchill, Hitler, Roosevelt, these larger-than-life figures. It was a period of terrible darkness, totalizing war. When all the world seemed to be a mix of fire and smoke. The British Empire had at this point effectively ended. In recent decades, it had controlled nearly a quarter of the globe's land area, making it the largest superpower in human history. And now the city at the center of it all was under siege. In the midst of an aerial invasion with sirens blaring and chaos reigning, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones stood before his congregation at Westminster Chapel. Here's a a photo of Westminster Chapel with the congregation gathered there. They were just a few hundred feet from Buckingham Palace, but they sought the ministrations of a higher kingdom. It was a frightening time in London. The Germans' remote-controlled bombing of the city had begun just days before and had already caused tremendous casualties, over 10,000 in a week, according to historian Ian Murray. It was the stuff of madness. It was catastrophic for the city. Pastor Martin, however, was not deterred. The whole church now could hear a plane closing in. And Lloyd-Jones had just begun his long prayer, his pastoral prayer, and he didn't stop. That is, until, until the whine overhead grew too loud for him to continue. And so he, he paused as all the congregation held their breath. And then the bomb fell. There was a, mas- a massive explosion. Debris fell from the ceiling. The structure of the chapel cracked. One woman had, had closed her eyes just moments before. And she opened them and saw fine white dust covering her fellow parishioners and thought she was in heaven. The congregation rose to their feet and panic was in the air. The church members waited to see what their pastor would do. Would he weep or run or or panic? He would not. With sirens screaming outside, he resumed his pastoral prayer. And at its close, he told the people that any who wished to do so could move under the gallery for safety as a deacon went up 
to the pulpit to dust it off and return to his seat. And then Lloyd-Jones resumed his place at the pulpit, the chapel's front, opened his Bible, and without missing a beat, he began to preach God's word to his people. The original recipients of Isaiah 9 were about to face a world very similar to that. Israel, just a few generations earlier, they had been this this great superpower, so to speak, a, a nation of unprecedented power and influence. And yet, as you know, during the reign of King Solomon, when the, the, the nation kind of reached the, the height of its power, shortly after, the kingdom split in two, with Israel in the north and with Judah in the south. But even still, at this point in Judah's history, as Isaiah is prophesying, Judah was experiencing economic success. Things seemed, at least from a monetary perspective, to be going pretty well. And yet, spiritually, the people were idolatrous. They're committing gross injustices toward the poor and the powerless in their land. And thus Isaiah prophesies that a time is coming in the not-too-distant future, a time of invasion and devastation. A nation would come from the north and take God's people captive. Exile was sure to come. And you have to understand, you know, Israel, they'd been the people of promise. God's promises had come to this people. They were those who claimed to have Abraham as their father and claimed that that they were the seed, the family, the nation, the kingdom that God would use to bless all the nations of the earth. They were the recipients of the promise of David. God had promised David that he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne and, and, and rule over his kingdom forever and ever. And the people of God have been waiting on these promises to be fulfilled, but this invasion was surely coming now. And instead of being a nation that blessed all the nations of the earth, they found that they were going to be a nation that was devastated by the nations of the earth. The descendant of David would be removed from his throne. He was being sent into exile like everyone else. Their current circumstances, no doubt, had them questioning whether or not God was going to keep his promises to them. They were losing hope. They were being sent into exile. They were being sent into darkness. It seemed that the kingdom of God would be seeing its last days. But it's into this darkness and despair that God speaks through Isaiah a word of hope. That the promised offspring was still coming. That the promised son of David was still coming. That the promise of Abraham would be fulfilled. That the Christ was coming. That his kingdom would never end. That he would usher in his rule and reign of peace and righteousness and justice forever. Now, the church, uh, the, uh, the people of Westminster Chapel in London, June 1944, they lived like we do. In a time where they had seen the fulfillment of this promise develop gloriously. We, we've seen the first coming of the child promised in Isaiah 9 here. We live on this side of his miraculous and lowly birth. We live on this side of his life of righteousness, his death on the cross, his his resurrection from the dead, his ascent to the right hand of God where he rules and reigns over all things. That's why they could gather and preach and pray and seek the ministrations of a higher kingdom in the midst of such darkness and devastation. That's why they they could wait on God even while the world was raging on around them. And that's what Advent is about. It's a, it's a season when we grow in waiting on the Lord. Again, on our last Sunday of Advent, Advent is simply a word that means coming. 
And it's a season wherein we look back to the first coming of Jesus and we remember what he's done and how he's ushered in his kingdom and how Israel was waiting and longing for him to come for all those years. And in that, it's also a season to stir up hope and anticipation in us for the fulfillment of the promises yet to come. To remember that while Christ has come, He's also promised to come again, and while, while there's darkness and devastation all around, while the nations rage, it's a time when we remember that Jesus is still king, seated on the throne, and he's going to come again to reclaim this world for his own with fullness and finality. That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. God has called us, like the Israelites in Isaiah 9, like the people of Westminster Chapel, to wait on him. We, too, live in a, in a time and place of deep darkness. You know, the last few years of life here seems like maybe nothing short of chaos to us, doesn't it? You know, pandemics and political turmoil, wildfires, natural disasters, war-torn lands. We live in a time of deep darkness. We live amongst a people who are jaded and lost. We, we live amongst a people that have been told for the last century or so that through the triumph of human reason, and through the prominence of the sciences, through technological advances, and through innovative economic systems and governmental structures, through all of this, that we were finally going to achieve the apex of human flourishing by our own means. We we're finally going to obtain justice and peace. And perhaps it's finally setting in that these promises have failed, that in all reality, we as humanity are living in exile. And because of this, we're, we're living in a time of unprecedented Anxiety, a, a time of delu- uh, d- disillusionment, a time where many people are frantically looking for some sort of hope, some sort of certainty, some sort of stability to base their lives on in the midst of it all. And here, Isaiah tells us that there is indeed a place where we can find what we're looking for, and it's in the promises of God. Isaiah 9 tells us about the first coming of the Lord Jesus. How he came to overturn our darkness and anguish by giving us the light and life and joy of knowing him. And it also tells us that he's the glorious king who's, who's going to return again to reign forever. And about how his kingdom of peace and righteousness will, righteousness will increase always and be established forever. And then Isaiah closes our text with a kind of guarantee. He says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts ensure and guarantee the fulfillment of this promise. So with that, we're going to look this morning at the child of promise, the kingdom of peace, and the zeal of the Lord. First, we find the child of promise. Now, we've already noted something of the the historical context of of this passage. Um, And, you know, we've seen that uh, the kingdom uh, of Israel had split in two, uh, but now Judah and Israel were were both uh, going to be sent into exile. And a nation, uh, Assyria actually, was going to be coming from the north, initially affecting the northern region of Israel, particularly in the land of Galilee and Naphtali and, and Zebulun. This nation was coming to take God's people into exile. And that's the darkness and the anguish that verse 1 speaks of here. And uh, remember that this is not just sort of the, the sort of sadness that comes from, from living in a war-torn land and, and being a people taken into political captivity and oppression. It's, it's that, but it's more than that. This anguish that, that Isaiah describes here is anguish that comes from being sent into exile 
just as humanity was sent into exile from the garden in the beginning. This is darkness and and anguish that comes from political oppression and violence and spiritual exile. This is political captivity, but even more, this is alienation from God. But then verses 1 to 3 show us that this darkness and this anguish is going to be overturned by light and joy. And, And from the same place, no less. Right, So from the northern territory of Galilee, from this place, verse 2 shows us that the people who walked in darkness are, are there from Galilee going to see a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. He's speaking of this future fulfillment of the promises in the present tense, saying it's as good as done. When God makes a promise, it's as good as done. So he says that, that while this darkness of exile originated in the northern regions of the kingdom, light is going to be coming from the same place, the place of Galilee. And not only light, he says, but joy. Look at verse 3. Isaiah says that this coming light will result in joy. And he compares it to the kind of joy felt when you experience the abundance of God's provision at harvest time. In verse 4, he, he compares it to the, ju- the type of joy felt when a nation wins a great battle and divides the, the spoil amongst themselves. This is the kind of joy that you experience when you get a huge bonus on payday. This is the kind of joy, he compares it to the kind of joy felt like if the, if the Cleveland Browns ever won the Super Bowl. This amazing kind of joy. It's rejoicing. It's that kind of joy, Isaiah says. And then verses 4, 5, and 6, they give us the reasons for this joy, right? In those verses, you can see the word for at the beginning of each verse. And and, and these these are successive uh, verses telling us the reasons for this joy. He goes down a list saying for or because, and then he gives us the reason why God's people are going to be so joyful. Uh, But then not only are these verses successive, you'll you'll notice they're also escalating. Okay, they, they escalate to a great crescendo in verse 6 as the ultimate reason for the coming joy of God's people. And so in verse 4, he says that, that this joy is coming because God will win a decisive victory for his people and deliver his people from oppression just like he did in the day of Midian. He compares it to the day of Midian. And the story of Midian can, can be found in Judges 6 to 8. It's where we find God worked through this, this uh, rather unlikely character named Gideon. You see, Gideon is this kind of weak and pathetic fellow. Uh, but God chooses this Gideon to lead his army into battle against the Midianites. And Midian was this strong nation whose army can't be numbered. And they were oppressing the Israelites. And as Israel was getting ready to, to go into battle against them, to seek to free themselves from their Midianite oppression and captivity, as, as they were getting ready to go into battle, God told Gideon, Hey Gideon, you have too many soldiers. Send away all of your soldiers who are afraid. And so he starts with 32,000 soldiers. But then 22,000 fearful men left and only 10,000 brave remained. And so they're ready. They're about to go into battle. They're greatly outnumbered, but they have a chance. But then at that point, God says to Gideon, again, you have too many soldiers. I want you to go down to the river to drink. And all who lap up the water by cupping it in their hands and bring it to their mouths, they can go into the fight, but the rest need to go home. And this is God's way of kind of thinning out the army again. But it's so extreme, and, and, and as a result, Gideon sends all but 300 men home. Then 
they go into battle with 300 soldiers. And moreover, with these 300 soldiers, God sends them into battle, not with swords and spears and and weapons. Instead, God sends them into battle with glass jars and trumpets. And with these glass jars and trumpets, Israel receives, by God's hand, absolute victory over the Midianite army as the Midianite army destroys themselves in their own confusion. The people of Israel rejoiced at what God had done. Joy is going to come, Isaiah says, because God is going to take away your darkness and oppression just like he broke the rod of the oppressor on the day of Midian. But then more than that, remember we're we're escalating here. A second for or because shows that this coming day will be a day not only of relief from oppression for God's people, but a day wherein God ends all war and oppression. Verse 5 says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Here's what that literally means. Y'all can hang up your war boots. So all of your war gear can be destroyed and thrown into a fire and, and, and destroyed permanently. There will be no more need for it. This is hearkening back to, to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 2.4, when he proclaimed that a day was coming wherein God's people shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is a day of global peace and harmony coming. The total cessation of war forevermore will one day come, God says. But then there's a third for or because here. Remember, they're escalating. They're getting bigger and they're getting better. And and you go, what? What could be better than the cessation of war and absolute peace in the earth? What could be better than that? What could cause more joy than that? Here we come to our great big epic crescendo in verse 6. For to us a child is born. And you go, what? Yes, to us a child is born. Ray Ortland puts it, uh, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. God's answer for everything that haunts us and hurts us is a a gurgling baby. Because you see, this baby is not just a baby. This baby is God himself come to us in human flesh. This child is is the eternal God himself. Look at the latter half of verse 6 there. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Friends, this promised child is God coming down and taking our humanity upon himself. This child who cannot speak, this is the one who spoke the universe into existence. This babe who's completely dependent on the life or for life on, on his teenage mother, is one who's never needed anything in his self-sufficiency for all of eternity. His rapper, Odd Thomas, puts it, this is the infinite become infant. See how Isaiah describes him. He's the wonderful counselor. Literally, his, his knowledge, his counsel, his wisdom knows no bounds. It's wondrous. He knows the end from the beginning. He calls all the stars by name. He is the mighty God, he says. He's boundless in power and strength. This is the one who flung planets into existence. This is the one, the author of Hebrews tells us, is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds and sustains all things, 
merely with the words of his voice. He's the everlasting father. Isaiah says, forever and ever, he will be the faithful caretaker of God's beloved people. And, and to be clear here, that does not mean that the child born is God the Father, the first person of the Holy Trinity coming to be incarnate. It was God the Son, the second person who came to be incarnate for us. But in those days, good kings were often viewed as a sort of caring father toward their people. And in that sense, Jesus is appropriately called our everlasting Father. He's also the Prince of Peace. He's the one and only ruler who will bring true and lasting peace to the earth. All of this is said of this child, this gurgling infant. You see why God compares it or why Isaiah compares it to the the, uh, day of Midian? The day in which God would work so powerfully through the most unlikely means. In the day of Midian, God would, would rescue his people from oppression from a strong nation through a weak and pathetic man and his small unarmed army. And this is the way God has always done it. He's in the Exodus. God rescued his people through the staff of a forgiven murderer. In the days of David, he would defeat the Philistine army and and their giant warrior through a short shepherd uninitiated in the things of war. In the day of Midian, he rescued his people in the weakness of Gideon and his tiny unarmed army and all to prepare God's people for the day in which their ultimate liberation would come, the day from which they would be rescued from all of their own sin and suffering and weakness of this little child, poor teenager having to rest his head, not a penny to his name. God's renovation of this world is, is already underway. In his first coming, Jesus has rescued and formed a forgiven people for himself who will take the message of his arrival to the ends of the earth so that all peoples might hear and believe him and any and all opposition to his loving rule will be extinguished and overcome by his judgment so that all who oppose the peace of God in this world are vanquished from it forever. We're waiting that day. And, you know, I wonder if some of you, perhaps, you know, you're not a Christian and you're here today and, and you're thinking all this talk about cessation of war and global peace is good and all. But my biggest issue in life is is not the presence of war somewhere out there across the world. My biggest issue in my life is the presence of war inside my chest. I don't feel at peace with myself within. You carry around perhaps just a a, a sense, sometimes it's low grade, sometimes it's more extreme. You carry around a sense of darkness and anguish. You're continually weighed down by fear or guilt or shame. And I want you to consider this morning... But the lack of peace you experience is because you're alienated from God. St. Augustine once said that in a prayer. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Ultimately speaking, God is where we find peace. He is our true home. Knowing him is our true rest. And that's what Jesus has come to bring in his first coming. 